Well, I'm so grateful that you're joining us for what is already episode 12 of the Conversations for Change. And uh, this episode, we're doing something different, uh, kind of calling it our St. Pete edition, because I'm going to be joined by uh, some great people. I'm going to bring them on screen right now from uh, our Liberty Church community in St. Pete, Florida. I'm joined uh, in this episode by uh, Brian Jennings. He and Jen, his wife, do an amazing job as our community pastors in St. Pete, just out of Tampa in Florida. And I'm also joined by Sherman and Belon Joseph. Hey, welcome you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. It's so good to have you guys join. And I've, I've been looking forward to this because I think um, as we've had these different conversations from week to week, I'm talking to people in different places, different cities, you know, London, uh, some of the team and our friends there, talking to Lou and Zinti from our community and Nanzini in Southern Africa. But this is the first time in this uh, series so far we've been able to hear from some of our Florida team. And uh, But let's back it up a minute before we kind of dive right into the conversation. Can you guys just like let us know, like, how, do you, how do you know each other? Let's go back a little bit in time. I mean, you're all part of what is Liberty Church St. Pete today, but can I get a little of the backstory, please? So we probably need to go back to some parachute pants and... <laughs> Camera days. Camera uh, days. But we couldn't wear those to school, Sherman. That was no go. <laughs> Uniforms, right? Right. <laughs> uh, ironically, Brian and I went to middle school together. Um, he's a year younger. We played in the orchestra together. And oh no, we're actually going to be talking about uh, race. And it's kind of funny that we're talking about this because even in middle school, we were segregated. And um, we had the black lunch table where the seventh and eighth graders sat at. And there was always this little skinny, little <laughs> odd white kid that always sat at the end of our table. And so he, he would just hang around us all the time. And lo and behold, is Brian, and my nickname for him in middle school was Shea White. He answered to it. I had the whole crew calling him Shea White. I don't even know why I came up with that name, but that was Brian's name, and he was part of the, the black crew in middle school. <laughs> I, I, I think something about growing up in South St. Pete, you know, <laughs> grandparents' house, and going to elementary schools in South St. Pete. I didn't know any different. And the other tables looked really different at South St. Pete. Their clothing looked different than my clothing, even though we were pretty much in uniforms. It just was like, I don't fit in over there, but I don't fit in really anywhere. <laughs> it looks like what I know. So I'll, I'll gravitate towards that table. <laughs> That's amazing. And so you guys, so Shay Whitey was born. Say why do we and uh when we came to Liberty, I didn't even realize it who he was until uh men's group and we were having breakfast and started talking about growing up in St. Pete and I was like no, that can't be Shay Whitey. So <laughs> I actually went home and uh, went to my grandparents' house and they had the old middle school yearbook and lo and behold, it was beautiful Shay White. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought all these years later? Yeah. That you would that Shay Whitey would be a <laughs> and that you guys would be building a church together. Who would have thought? Right. Yeah, so funny. 
crazy. Yeah. So you know, how long how long have you guys been hot on St. Pete, Liberty St. Pete now? We came um, the we came weekend, second, second, second weekend. That they, um, after launched. they launched. Wow. Yeah. So a few years of leading together, building together, what, what an amazing thing. Yeah. Well, I think it's important for us to talk about it because I think like every city, every nation, they have like a, a unique history, right? And that, that history, the fabric of that, good and, and bad, um, you know, uh, I think speaks to what we're connecting on today. I mean, this whole series has been about um, race, reconciliation, injustice, really the heart of, of the gospel and what should be the heart of the local church, right? Um, and maybe you guys, maybe I could start with, um, you know, Sherman and Balan, and you guys could give, just from your own perspective, you know, a lot of people listening will be from other cities. Um, maybe you can just explain a little bit about St. Pete for the uninitiated. I've been there a few times, but even still, like, help me understand some of the history of St. Pete, maybe especially from the point of view of um, maybe race or equality opportunity and some of those things. And because we're going to talk a little bit about the local church and how you know, reconciliation and the gospel can be part of the answer. But where, where has St. Pete kind of been? Maybe we can start there. There's, there's two separate St. Pete's. And I think my wife and I are fortunate to speak from both sides. Uh, we live in a little area called Gulfport, which is a subdivision of St. Petersburg. And this location, my grandparents were actually the first Blacks to actually move into this area. Um, so I grew up different from Belong, where I was in predominantly all-white school, all-white neighborhoods for most of my childhood, whereas my wife was on the other side of the tracks uh, in the, the, the true South St. Pete. <laughs> so I'm laughing because my husband um, likes to think he's sedity sometimes <laughs> where he grew up on the white side of town. <laughs> I grew up on a black side of town, so he's he's bougier than I am type of situation. So we tease each other about that all the time. Um, but St. Pete, it's funny. We just recently moved back to St. Pete um, three, about three and a half years ago at this point. Um, we've been living in North Central Florida for the last decade or so. Um, and when we came back and actually started to live here, um, we were surprised about how much had changed and we were surprised about how much had not changed um, in terms of segregation. St. Pete, as he just mentioned, has always, for as long as I've known, has been a segregated place. Um, if you look at our dividing line, which is Central Avenue in St. Petersburg, anything north of Central Avenue would have been more white um, and still is more white. Anything south of Central would have been more Black and still is more Black. Um, the schools, for the most part, I went to um, actually predominantly white schools, but only because I was bused. So during that was during the time where, you know, you were forced <laughs> to go to other schools unless you got into a fundamental like what Brian and um, Sherman attended in middle school. Uh, otherwise, or a magnet. Otherwise, you had to be bused to a school. And we were bused for high school, for example, 30 minutes away. 
So most of the kids from my neighborhood, we went to the same high school, but that high school was definitely not in our community. So it was only 20% African-American students in our high school. Everyone else was um, Caucasian. Uh, so you saw white kids at school, but you didn't see white kids or white people really in the neighborhood. Um, everybody was black. Um, our churches were black. Um, any community initiatives, everything was, was black. Um, and for the most part, as a kid growing up, I didn't mind that. I saw people who looked like me, um, who were trying to do life together, and I was okay with that. It wasn't until I went to school <laughs> where I felt the most frustrated um, because I was always the only black child in my classes. I was magnet and AP and gifted track, so I was alone, and I had to represent the whole race of black people. I had to speak to every black question that they might have had regarding the curriculum or a book we had to read. Um, and it was frustrating because I really did feel like I had to represent my race because there was this negative stigma um, about my race. So I never felt like, um, I never felt like black people and white people in St. Pete, traditionally, we just were like, we hang out, we're cool. You just really didn't, unless you grew up in a situation like my husband, who growing up in Gulfport, he was, how many other black kids lived here in None. the 80s and 90s? None. He was pretty I, much I skateboarded and surfed. That should tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so your situation was completely different growing up here. It was different, but it wasn't different due to the fact that I was the only black child, but my grandparents, especially my grandmother, kept a really tight leash on me to where I couldn't understand it, where I couldn't go certain places, I couldn't go over certain people's houses. And it wasn't until I got older, she explained to me why. And it was my size and the color of my skin where I had to be careful. I remember right here in Gulfport, walking home from high school, and a car hits me, and I'm walking with another little white kid about the size of Brian. And the police end up giving me a ticket saying I was obstructing traffic, and the reason why the police said the car didn't stop after he hit me was, his excuse was he was afraid that I was gonna beat him up. And so it wasn't different, but I just learned to adapt. Yes to the situation at hand. And growing up here, you still have to learn. To this day, I still have to learn to adapt and make sure I make white people comfortable when they're around. Yeah. Maybe you could speak to that just a, a little bit because that's, that's, uh, that's something I've heard uh, in a few of the different conversations. Um, this, this sort of sense of needing to, people have used different phrases for it. They talk about kind of editing themselves or feeling like they can't really bring who they are or having to all the time think about, you know, other people's comfort or familiarity or whatever. Could you, maybe you could expand a little bit on that, on that Shama and what that was like for you. It's frustrating uh, because I always have to be mindful of where I'm going. Uh, even to this day, if I go out the house and I'm gone for too long, my wife is blowing up my phone 
to make sure I'm okay. And it's not like, oh, I, what you're doing is, did you get arrested? Did the cops pull you over? Are you okay? What's going on? Like, where are you at? It's almost like I have to have this extra person that I have to tote around and I understand it because of the climate we live in. Uh, we find it in churches where in, in Caribbean black culture, we tend to be loud, aggressive, just fun. Aggressive might not be the, the, well, the it, it just loud. Very, okay. And so loud is interpreted in a lot of spaces as aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just being loud and being excited. You know, it's not uncommon for when somebody um, becomes excited that their voices become elevated. Um, but typically that is translated if you are not amongst that circle of people to being, oh, it's going to get violent or this person is aggressive. I should be concerned or afraid. Um, you deal with that All quite a time. bit. Yeah. Because I'm loud. I know I'm loud. <laughs> I can't help it. That's just how I am. But I always have to be mindful in every circle not to offend and make sure everyone else is comfortable, even though it may make me uncomfortable. Right. You can't be too loud. You can't be too, you can't be too black. Because <laughs> right. being too black makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And that's something that I even have to, ex- I experience um, in the professional space, being an educator, um, dealing with different organizations in the community, I have to make sure I'm not using too much slang because I don't want people to assume that I'm uneducated. Even though the doctor is in front of my name, I still have to prove to people that I'm smart enough or I'm good enough to be in the room. Um, and that has been the case my entire life, starting from school system up until now. Um, even my children, like I was very, I'm probably, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but it's the truth. <laughs> when we were pregnant with our kid, I was very mindful that I can't name my kids anything too ethnic or too urban because I don't want them to have problems down the line because I know that employers, um, schools will overlook my child even if they are just as bright and intelligent as someone else, um, just as qualified as someone else, their name can count them out. So I tried to make my kids' name something that was easy to pronounce and something that was easy for people to spell so that they don't have to deal with issues that family members, or even myself, my name is a very unique name, Balan. I've met two other people in my entire life who have this name. And honestly, people thought I was a, a, a white male most of my life until I got married <laughs> because, <laughs> because my last name was Schultz. Um, I was adopted, my father was white and my mother was black. So I had my father's name. So on paper, they thought I was a white male. And I, I believe that benefited me in a lot of spaces, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, because of the stigma that comes with being too black or being too ethnic in in professional um, or even academic spaces. I, I would I would imagine too that uh, that that's kind of got to be exhausting, you know. Yes. <laughs> all of all of 
thinking about, I mean, that's honestly in these conversations, one of the biggest things that I've learned is to think about what it must be like to think about things that are just not a part of my worldview. Uh, how many people in these kind of conversations have talked about as a parent having the conversation with your kids about being pulled over or, you know, um, kind of editing yourself or always thinking about, you know, how being to you, whatever that is, could impact, impact others. Um, Brian, maybe you can jump in here a little bit and just share as um, from the perspective of uh, Shay Whitey. Um, <laughs> um, in all seriousness, like I'm really, I mean, so you grew up in St. Pete as well. Grew up in St. Pete, um, predominantly went to South schools. So I went to Campbell Park Elementary, which is in South St. Pete, and then to uh, Southside where I met Sherman. But most of my time was spent uh, at my grandparents' place until I got a place in North St. Pete. And to Sherman's point, one of the things that stood out to me so much about really spending more time in North St. Pete, because up until seventh grade, I really hadn't ventured out, out much because I could only ride my bike, bike so many blocks basically previously. And I remember I had, oh, I had Daryl and Terry on over, two African-American guys over to my, my uh, all excited. Like my parents got this house, like I want to show it off. And they, they're like, they came over and I remember now we're in North St. Pete and here's two African-American middle schoolers and we're out playing football and next thing the police are in the front like out and the neighbors had called the police saying that there were two black kids assaulting a white kid mm. and so like that was my first experience like what is going on because I'd never seen that before and I didn't process that until much later in life that, that oh, wait there there is a distinct St. Pete here that is north and south and they are worlds apart and you know even more so uh sherman when we were chatting and you started sharing about the riots in 96 mm -hmm. when i had moved away but i was completely unaware of how that even drove the division probably further in yes. and you know it's probably stuff that we are now addressing today that happened then which furthered the divide hmm. and maybe brian you can speak to a little bit too i mean so wh what year was it i should i should know this but what year was it that we that we launched in st pete 2017. <laughs> I should 2017. We're all, so here's what's crazy we would be it's three years we were supposed to launch on september 17th but we were delayed because of a hurricane right yeah. and so you know, we're recording this almost on the three-year anniversary. <laughs> and what a, what a journey it's been, too. Um, yeah. Launching a church together. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm putting you guys on the spot, but I mean, so, I mean, Sherman and Belan, you guys joined, like, from week two. Brian, you've had this church in your heart. It's kind of like full circle in a way, because maybe you can explain for people who haven't been to St. Pete. I mean, at the moment of this recording, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We haven't like had an in-person service in our usual venue in, I don't know, six months and counting or something at this point. But we're figuring out we're doing church in the park and church online and all the church everywhere. 
Um, but, you know, speak a little bit to where we're gathering and some of the things that have been in the DNA of the church that you guys, I mean, I really look at, at you, you, I mean, obviously you guys are representative of a much bigger team, but you guys are pioneering a church together. Even the location feels kind of significant to that vision of reconciliation. I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think without where God put us as a church and where we were, I don't believe we would see the diversity because that central line is still pretty heavily drawn. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that is really drawn amongst churches. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that lovely baseball field is, if you like baseball or you don't like baseball, that thing represents some, some real hurt in the city. And, you know, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're just outside of that enough and, you know, the, our desire is to press into these challenging conversations to continue to grow, you know, in all of our ability to lead well and learn from one another because as a community, that's what we're called to do. And even when it's uncomfortable, you know, and it's challenging and you don't know someone else's perspective and you, you know, you can pick up the phone and we can have conversation. And even when you might not like what you're hearing in the moment, like, you know, that God's doing the work. And I love that, you know, with both Balan and Sherman, that they're, they're willing to go and do the work so that we uh, can see that central line slowly come down. You know, I know it's not going to happen overnight. You know, I, I think e even Sherman, your occupation and what you do in reality is amazing because you're expanding people's view of the city. You're showing people so many areas of the city that they probably wouldn't consider based on probably the color of their skin. I think that's beautiful. And we really, the, the school where we typically meet, Gibbs, is pretty close to that central line, right? I mean, it's in some ways, it's, I almost felt like a gift in terms of what was in our heart to do. And to Brian's point, boy, it's not like mission accomplished. It's like we're scratching the surface, you know, of really healing those divides and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of history, um, a lot of present pain, frankly, not just history. It's easy to look back, but it's also like looking into our own hearts and but I think it feels sort of symbolic in a way, um, you know, that it's uh, like, like the Lord gave us a venue that would straddle, straddle that, that space, you know. I mean, I remember when we first began hearing stories as we launched some of our community groups, you know, which are typically in homes of people saying, oh, I haven't really, I don't really know anyone on the north side or the south side, whichever it would be, you know, this idea of almost breaking new ground, you know. Yeah, that's something I've always said about Liberty um, as we continue to attend. We had been searching for church prior to Liberty, and we had gotten to the place where we were like, oh, Jack, I guess we ain't going to church. We just going to have to go to Bedside Baptist and watch something on YouTube because we can't find a church here. We didn't want to go to uh, all whichever race you want to say it is, whether it was all Black or all white. Um, we've had the privilege of being in churches where you saw a good mixture of people and we wanted our family to be a part of a ministry where you saw a good mixture of people. And, and no slight to the white church or the black church, 
I understand the black church. I understand the need for a black church. There were so many instances that black Christians, they could not worship in a, a Baptist church or a Methodist church. They had to create their own. So I, I understand the historical safety behind a cultural safety behind a black church. Like I completely understand that. And I, I appreciate the times that I've been able to be a part of black churches, but in my heart, I genuinely feel that God's will is not for us to be segregated as believers. I believe that goes completely against the whole concept of the body, one body of Christ. There's no way that we can be one body of Christ when we are disjointed and so racially segregated on Sunday morning. Um, so we were like, we want to find a church, but we don't see one here. Um, and then we got the flyer in the mail about Liberty. I love that the church was going to be at Gibbs High School because Gibbs holds um, such a special place in my heart um, because that's where my mother who passed away, that was her alma mater. Um, but that's also the one of the few historically Black high schools that that's still open and that's still running. Um, so I was like, man, the school's going to be at Gibbs and okay, let's try it out. And I'm glad that we did. And I, I always said, and I've said this to Jim probably 20 million times, but I believe just to your point, Paul, that there is something very supernatural, <laughs> very um, strategic on God's part for Liberty to be where it is. Um, because you're right, we would not have um, started to build relationships with people on the other side of Central Avenue had it been for us all meeting and getting to know each other through the community groups and through Liberty Church as the the, the ground zero, <laughs> if you will. And I think that's the beautiful thing. Um, and I think it's it's an opportunity to connect with the ministries that are there. And many of the ministries that are there near uh, Gibbs High School are Black churches um, who are in many cases, very much the representative of a lot of Black people when it comes to distrusting the, the um, intentions of white people when it comes to them being in their community. Right now we have gentrification where we're now seeing more white people come in, but they're coming in to kick somebody else out. <laughs> so that level of distrust is growing, you know, results. So it's still very segregated, extremely segregated, but we are very aware, especially with my husband being in real estate, that is changing. Mm. Um, black families are being pushed out further and further north, actually, as uh, white families decide that they want to live in the city and they want to be able to have the convenience of everything being in walking distance. Well, that now means that somebody whose home was here is no longer going to be here. Mm. Um, which is problematic in and of itself. And you being in New York, I know you see that <laughs> all the time. All the time. Yeah, so that's yeah, something that we were having a struggle with now too. Yeah, and it, it changes the face of neighborhoods and oftentimes um, the people and the things that were so special about uh, a neighborhood can, um, can be the, the things and the people who suffer, you know, um, the ones who can no longer afford to live in a, in a place that became attractive to a new demographic and, 
up go the prices and yes. all of those things yeah. that go along with it. Brian, maybe you can speak a little bit to, um, you know, uh, I, I look back, one of the things that I said before we hit record was I had no desire for this conversation to be like in any way that we're pretending we've got it all figured out at Liberty Church. You know, it's like, I, I, I mean, I, I just, I think it's, it's a work in progress. It's something yes. that we're, you know, pressing into, I think, um, reconciliation is the heart of the gospel. I mean, and you know, the, you know, the gospels, this will make it clear, you know, Christ is entrusted to us now, the ministry of reconciliation. So he's saying, you know, tag, you're it. Um, Brian, what is, what are you learning about reconciliation? You know, as, cause it's, it's, my experience has been, um, I mean, hard conversations, has been owning things, discovering things I don't love about myself or blind spots or just almost things that were invisible to me come to the surface for me to, you know, lean into, ponder, bring before the Holy Spirit. There's been times for me to, I don't know, repent, lament, all of the above, right? And what are you, what are you learning as a community pastor in St. Pete, given all the history that you guys and and Sherman and Balan have been sharing. What, do you, what are you learning about trying to build a local church that would be a place of reconciliation? Is there anything that stands out to you? I think the big thing that really stands out is listening, just being open and listening. And when, when God presses something on your heart that hurts digging into that hurt place and figuring out what is that hurt? Like why when Sherman tells me this, I am feeling internally like either challenged or hurt. And what, what is the worldview that I adopted that might be false? And in adopting a false worldview or false narrative, I now need to break agreement with that and ask God, what, what is your heart for this? And just being humble to go after those places and knowing the friends that you have, you can have those real conversations with. You know, and just being okay to say, hey, I, I don't have this figured out. I'm, I'm, I'm a work in progress on this. And you know, I know my first call with Sherman that I had a couple months ago around this, it was so revealing on so many areas within my own self, but also within the, the church where there were stereotypes and prejudice and you know, out of his willingness to share and him saying, hey, this is, this is tough to say, but it needs to be said, like that then gives you the framework to go after it and start the hard work, which I think we're called to. Well, I just, I want to say um, thank you, Sherman, for being one of those people in Brian's life because maybe more than you know, both you and Belon, I mean, as you're helping them, you're helping the church as a whole, you know, I think um, so much learning to be done, right? So much, so much uh, change and progress to be had. And I, um, I just want to say thank you for being those sort of people. I mean, you're having one of those conversations now, but I think, I think it's a both end. It's like, we need to have the public conversations because um, we all need to grow and learn together and we need to, I don't know, 
I'm using the royal we, but it's like we, we the church, we need to wrestle with stuff, own stuff. We, you know, we need to walk that stuff out in a public space. And then I also think it's no substitute though for the private conversations. And, you know, there's nothing like relationship. You know, the Bible says, I guess we quote all the time, it's Proverbs, you know, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. But I just want to honor you both for being those sort of people that would be willing. Because, you know, in this day and age, I mean, it's, is, I can't think of a more polarized time in my life, at least when, whether it, I mean, not just, um, you know, on issues of, of race and injustice, but I mean, politically and in so many other ways, there's like, you know, cancel culture. I mean, just this whole, this, it just feels like a time when rather than have a conversation, the default for so many people is just, I'm out. Um, and you know what? I didn't say that with any judgment either, because I think, you know, boy, I, I I, I, underst I understand or I can imagine why that would be an instinct, even just for self-preservation. Something people have said a number of times, you know, I mean, Balan, you alluded to this earlier when you were going through and often the only of person of color in your classes, a few times people have said to me as I've had conversations around um, racial reconciliation, they're like, you know, I'm just kind of tired of being the one who has to explain <laughs> Like, I don't represent, you know, this is, we are not a monolithic culture. I don't speak for everyone. Can you, maybe you could read a book instead of like leaning on me to be your education and explain slash justify everything that I'm saying. And yeah. I mean, like, that was, go on that was one of the things that stood out to me was when Trevor and I were talking, like, I had no clue the sheer number of people that were reaching out via social media and whatnot for Sherman's viewpoint. I'm like, oh my gosh, if I woke up and my inbox was inundated with people wanting to know, all of a sudden, my life story or the impacts of things that have happened because of skin color, like, I was like, oh my gosh, like, no wonder why you're tired physically, emotionally, and everything in between. Right. When you were sharing with me, like, I was just like, I want to be Sherman's Facebook page to a public figure so no one can message him. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I wouldn't want to talk either. I'd be like, I'm going to post something and goodbye, everyone. <laughs> yeah. right. That's how I think it's, I've seen both sides. I've seen um, Black Americans who are like, listen, I'm all talked out. I know that this is a great awakening for you, <laughs> but this is not a great awakening for me. This is not new stuff to me. And we've been saying this for a long time. Like, and I, I get that. So they're like, hey, read all of the things that are available to you. We are in a Google age where everything is at your fingertips. If you want to know, you can learn. And hey, I respect that because I get it. It is exhausting. But at the same time, and Sherman and I would probably... The, on that's the opposite of that scale. So Sherman probably be the one where he's like, Google it. I'm tired to talk about this. But I'm, I'm like, hey man, just call me. Let's just sit down and let's have a conversation. Um, because I feel like there is so much healing and understanding that comes from having these conversations about race. And of course, this isn't, isn't the end point. It's absolutely the starting point, but it's a starting point. And it's a place that as the, ch as the church, we haven't done this. 
this is the first time in my entire life that I can recall um, just the world being at a position or in a posture of humility to say that there really is a problem and we really need to rally together to do something. Uh, previous to this, there were excuses. Well, why didn't he just comply? You know, why did he do this? Well, what was his criminal record that would justify him being killed in the street like a dog, right? That was before now. Now everybody, I can't say everybody, but a good portion of people globally are coming to terms with this really is still very much a problem. This is not from 50 years ago. This is not us talking about slavery a hundred and some odd years ago. I mean, even when you think about those numbers, how many generations removed are we from slavery? Like, it's not that long. Like, it's not. I still have relatives who can tell me about integrating the first high school. That is not a long time. And for us to feel like it, we should have arrived by now. That makes no sense to me. This is still relatively a new thing for us as a nation. And it's something that we have to deal with. We have to address. We have to talk about it if we want to get to that place of reconciliation. Because prior to now, there was no discussion. We didn't talk about race in church. We'll talk about homosexuality. We'll talk about abortion. We'll talk about any other issue that we feel is worthy of diving into because it's in the scripture, right? But race, we didn't talk about it. A lot of churches still aren't talking about it, but I applaud the churches that are because it's necessary. I expect the world to be the world. The world is the world. Like that's what they're supposed to do. Our job is to give them the gospel and pray that they turn to Jesus so that they become a part of the body of Christ. But the body of Christ I hold to a higher standard because we're supposed to be believing the same thing. And there's no way that you can tell me that you're okay with um, systemic racism and white supremacy in the church, uh, prejudice and discrimination in the church. This idea that black people, if they become a part of a white church, they have to assimilate. They gotta be just like all the white people in the white church in order to belong. You can't tell me that we're, we're worshiping and serving the same God. There's no accountability in that, that, that place. There's no talks or discussions about the pain, the real lived experiences, the real lived pain, painful experiences that many people of color um, experience with racism on a regular basis. The church should be the one place where we can safely um, have brave conversations about that and not be dismissed um, and not be ignored, right? This, is, this should be the place where we can talk it out together and, and, and come to a place of healing together, a place where we can feel comfortable to forgive and a place where our, our white brothers and sisters can feel comfortable to repent and not feel like, well, I didn't own slaves, so I don't have anything to repent for. Like, I hear that. We've heard that. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard that. There's, there's things that we can do today and together. And it starts with stuff like this. It starts in moments like this, where we're sitting across the table or across Zoom and we're having, we're having a conversation because that makes us more human. 
that makes us all people. And I think that's how we can relate to each other better. And we, we desperately need that in this time for the church to really be united, not this, this fake stuff that we've been doing for far too long. Yeah. Maybe we could jump off that line and just talk a little bit. I mean, I, I know that at the moment we're recording this, you um, are getting ready to co-host, I guess, <laughs> what we call a community group at, Lib at Liberty Church for those, you know, watching that are not part of our church. It's for like Bible studies, you know, small groups. Um, and we do them different, different seasons of the year. But can you just share a little bit of the backstory of the group that you're going to be co-hosting? Because I feel, I feel like it's a very, I mean, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a tangible expression of what you were just sharing about. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, just to preface it, Jen and I, if, anytime I would have a conversation with her, we go for a coffee. The coffee's supposed to be 30 minutes and the coffee lasts the four hours. And every four hour coffee. Because <laughs> we're home with the kids, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> every four hour coffee, we always ended up talking about race. And we talked about um, racism when we talked about the responsibility of the church in trying to rectify um, this, this, this cancer that is racism. Um, so we've been talking about this probably for years, a group that we wanted to co-host um, or co-lead where we were just simply having courageous conversations with um, other members in the church about race um, and about racism and about um, God's perspective or the Bible's the biblical perspective of how we should deal with, with justice and, and race and all of those things. Um, it wasn't until recently that I had even learned about um, Latasha Morrison or her book, um, Be the Bridge, um, until uh, I think it was something known, is it Nona Roberts? Nona Jones. Yeah. Jones. Um, what you all were uh, putting on the live feed about faith and was it faith and prejudice, something of that nature, her, their whole campaign. Um, and she's one of the guests. I had never heard of her or her book, but everything she was talking about was everything that I've been feeling in my heart. Because you're right, we're, we're at this, we're very polarized when it comes to topics such as this. Um, and my heart was, I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of being bitter. I don't wanna hate white people and it's easy to hate white people. I'm just gonna be honest, based on what I've experienced and what I've seen, it's very difficult not to. And it's something that God has continuously for many years has had to work with me personally on. Um, because of what I experienced, I was like, oh man, all y'all saying. And I'm sure it can be said on the other side of the track. Some experience that was had we are now associating all people with what some one person or a few people did. And I, I knew that as a believer, that could not continue to sit in my heart if I'm going to be true to what God is calling me to do. So um, I wanted to figure out how to be a bridge, how to be able to connect white people and black people to, to sit down and have a conversation so that we can together work on dismantling racism as a church and as a community. Um, so when Jen brought it to my attention that she was thinking of doing that book and she wanted to know if I would co-lead with her, I was like, absolutely, because it's, it's right where 
I'm, I, this is where I am in my, my life. This is where God has me, even professionally, leading and facilitating conversations about race where we are having to figure this thing out together, um, where we all need healing. Everybody, for the most part, who's allowing themselves to be awakened in this moment is feeling some kind of pain. Um, it could be pain from, I didn't say anything, or pain from, I didn't know or I've been convincing myself that I didn't know. It can be pain from, this has been my experience, and wow, somebody's finally listening. Somebody's finally you know, paying attention to what I've experienced and, 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 and not trying to make me feel like I'm crazy. <laughs> so to be able to lead this group with Jen for our church, I think is, it has the opportunity to be extremely powerful, but not just for our church. I feel like we should invite other ministries in. Mm -hmm. um, we're inviting members from other black churches and members from other white churches to all sit down mm -hmm. and start working through this, this, this reconciliation, this healing, and this place of repentance mm -hmm. and this place of forgiveness that we all need to, to, to find ourselves at if we truly want to be one church. Mm -hmm in this moment we need desperately to be one church um but it starts there well yeah i couldn't agree more um i mean i feel like that's part of the part of the tension you know we want to be one church and that is the vision i mean that was that was jesus prayer i think it's john 15 right they be one as we are one father son holy spirit and and yet the journey to becoming one is like is owning stuff, learning stuff, humility, repentance, you know what I mean? Like being knit together. There's like there's a there's a journey in that. My friend um Cedric Johnson, a pastor here in New York in Brooklyn, great man. Actually, he's gonna be on one of these upcoming conversations. He talks about kind of this like it's like a false sort of community that we have where we don't acknowledge difference or pain or diversity. Um, and I think we got to press through that. He calls it the chaos, you know. And I, I feel that when you when you talked about the discomfort, I, I think I feel a certain amount of that at the moment where it's um, disorienting or, you know, that you know, sense that it's like, well, I just have to admit, I don't know. I have to admit things I just don't understand. I have to just, you know what I mean? I have to admit, like, I'm, 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 making, I'm making mistakes. I'm, I, you know what I mean? I'm... I, I, where, where am I getting this wrong? I have to have the humility to be able to say, help me, teach me, you know? Um, and I think that's a really important kind of, well, for a lot of us, I think especially when, you know, I mean, I, I find myself in a place of leadership and honestly, I think it's a really, it's, it's a weird time to be a pastor of a church. Um, I didn't say that asking for any pity because I love it and God told us, but I, I feel that times like these, I don't know, I think if you have any self-awareness at all, a lot of leaders that I'm friends with are feeling like, have I ever felt more unqualified than to lead right now? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the natural. And I get, I get that in the end, that's, you know, in some ways I think God loves to use the foolish things to confound the wise and of you were, you know. <laughs> noble and educated and you know I'm like that's me you know but I, I feel like this journey um, that you're talking about there Belon and those hard conversations is really the fabric of this right I mean I 
or at least it's like the place where we can start to meet and to learn and to grow. Um, I don't know, I guess as I, as you're sharing with that, I, I was just thinking, I wonder what each of you, like here's, here's everybody staying engaged, right? And um, in stepping into creating spaces like that community group or having conversations. I don't know if any of you, if anything comes to mind, but like, what are you, what are you hoping? Like, let's just say for, for, for our kids, when our kids um, are the ages that we are now, <clears throat> you know, what are you, what are you hoping? I don't know if any of you have an answer to that. I mean, you want to speak to that? I'm probably not the best one to speak to that because if I have to be honest with you, I don't have hope. Mm -hmm. Because the fact that I have to deal with stuff and hear, remember the stories that my grandparents and mother dealt with, and now I'm dealing with it. Mm -hmm. I do not have hope that my kids will have to, will not have to deal with it because they are. I mean, it's being taught in school. Just the other day, Belon is sitting down with my sixth grader going over a history homework and looking in the book, they're glorifying slavery. Like the slaves had it great. So how can we have any hope when we change history to make other people comfortable? So I don't, I'm not sure. I'm very optimistic. On what the, I'm sorry, pessimistic on what the, the future looks like for our children. Uh, I pray to God that it gets better, but I probably wouldn't bet the house on it uh, <laughs> if I had to be honest with you, Paul. <laughs> Where'd you get that statement from? That's so funny <laughs> to me. Oh my gosh. And you know what? And I get everything my husband is saying. Um, and after George Floyd's murder, I felt a level of hopelessness that I had never felt before. And I've shared this with anybody who was willing to listen. Like, I felt like when he was murdered, um, it was like a family member was murdered. Like, I, I mourned the loss of this man like he was my brother or my uncle, and I'd never met this man before in my life, but something about that situation, and I'm sure we all can have our own stories about it, because it, it was a defining moment, I think, globally for a lot of people, but for me, I, I just, I never felt that level of hopelessness um, with the, the, the protests and all of the, the bloodshed in the streets, and I, I'm looking at this stuff on my television and my daughters are beside me. My six-year-old is, my nine-year-old, my nine-year-old is freaking out because she's scared to death that a police officer is going to gun down her dad. Um, she couldn't understand why so many people hated Black people enough to end their lives. And as parents, we could only console her by holding her and trying to quiet her, but we didn't have the words to really tell her what she needed to feel peace or comfort in that moment. Cause we didn't have it ourselves. Like that was the hardest thing for me now being a mother and thinking back to 1996 when I'm in middle school and 
we, we have the St. Pete riots because a black man was, was shot and killed by a police officer then. And then to now be in 2020 where it's the same thing. And I have family members who can think of riots from the 70s or from the 60s. Like we, history continues to repeat itself. So I felt really hopeless. At the same time, I couldn't stay there <laughs> because if I do, then I might as well just crawl into my bed and never get up again because we have to go out into this world every day and we have to eventually, once this pandemic is a thing of the past, in the name of Jesus, <laughs> uh, we're going to have to go back out into this world again. And I am just hoping that my children don't have to look at the television screen and say, oh, well, here's another situation like this again. And I remember when I was a kid and that happened, right? But the, the murders continue. We, we've had several in the last few weeks, right? And it's, it's, it's daunting, it's frightening, um, it's frustrating. But at the same time, I still see God in the midst of all of this. I do not believe that God will ever leave us or forsake us. If I, I can say anything about Black Americans, we are spiritual people and we are, we've gained any amount of strength that we have from our spiritual connection to God. Um, that has been the foundation and continues to be the foundation of our strength. And that continues to be our foundation as a family. Um, we can't give up hope, even though it's easy to do it. And it's even justifiable. But if I lose hope, then I'm saying that my God is not big enough to change things. And for as much work as America still needs to do, and this is a global issue, racism is just not here. It's all around the world. Um, there's so much that has been done. There are so many things that um, I have access to now, that my husband has access to now, that my children have access to now, that 50 and 60 years ago, that it was not that. So we're making progress slowly, <laughs> but we're making progress. So I believe that things can get better. And I believe that if we continue to find ways to come together, because I think the difference now is we're looking at what happens to Black Americans in this country as a human rights issue. And because we're looking at a human rights issue, you get more people who are willing to get behind that because every human has the right to be treated like, I don't know, a human. <laughs> they have the right to due process where they're not charged, tried, and convicted on the streets. Um, every human being should have access to justice, right? That's what we are marching for. That's what we are fighting for. The opportunity to just be treated like anybody else and not to be treated as um, some kind of sub-citizen in a nation that we help to build. That doesn't make sense to me. And I refuse to hold on to any other idea that God is not at work because he is. I see things changing in policies. I see things changing in the way companies are even operating. I'm working with companies who are trying to make things different 
where they want to be actively anti-racist. We're having this conversation as a church. We had not had this conversation before now. I see that as tangible proof that God is moving and that I'm going to keep trusting him and I'm going to keep believing him and whatever part he wants me to play in it, I'm going to play it because I know that there's more to come and I believe there's good things to come. That's my hope and prayer. What about you, Brian? I'm just going to say amen on that. Hold it. <laughs> that, that is just, just some beautiful words and absolute amazing vision there. And I, I would agree to that. I mean, I think the church is really the hope and we have to go down every uncomfortable road and work through everything and turn it over and come together in, in some way of, of unity. And, you know, as the church comes together, the church, as we come together and come across cultural and racial lines, like I believe then we can see cities change. We can see reconciliation happen because like we're not operating in the world's power and we're operating in kingdom power and we've we've got all the resource but we got to come together and work together like we we've got to be willing to say i don't understand and i may have said something that hurt you i may have done something that offended you and let's go down this road and let's talk and let's work this thing out because heaven help us if we don't but yeah. I feel we just have an obligation to, to go down and see, see this through. And uh, as a church, I feel that it's the same. I mean, I hear what you guys are saying, but I would, I would ask the question, what is so hard? We're talking about, like, we make this sound so complicated as people, and it's not. Treat people equally. It seems like we can have compassion for a dog. We threw Michael Vick under the bus over a dog. We, we can have compassion for Jews in the Holocaust. But what is it about the word black that makes the church uncomfortable? Because let's, let's take the world out of it. Let's just focus on inside the church. And what I've noticed is church members in our congregation, are more concerned with buildings burning down than the lives of people dying. They're more concerned with the loss of employment over the, the affordable housing that Black people are losing. So it's not that complicated, but until white America gets uncomfortable being uncomfortable, and move forward to deal with those issues, we're still here because black people have never lost hope. We've been marching and praying since slavery. So it's not, it's not that hard. You don't need, need me to teach you how to treat somebody well because you can do that on your own, I see it. So why is it now when it comes to my race, it's a problem? Right. It's good. And it really is. Yeah. It really is that simple. I mean, it's about human dignity, about the nature and character of Christ. And I don't know. I think, like what you said, Shaman, like until we can get comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know? 
what they call it, white fragility. Why do we get nervous when we talk about this stuff? Why is it, why is it hard? Why is it so unfamiliar? What's the instinct to rewrite history to make it uh, paint things in a different light? Or, you know, what is it about us that tries to edit that? I say us, but you know, <laughs> you're not wrong. I think if, uh, if anything, I mean, what you said before, Sherman, you know, about feeling kind of pessimistic and the reasons for that, I guess, may, maybe my hope is to give you more reasons to hope, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And that we can, uh, there's a part of it that is, I think, I think part of what I'm, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not understanding you rightly, but I think there's a part of it when I, when I look at it, the, the, the whole, when I look at US, when I look at the world, when I look at humanity, when I, I look at these, these big broad brush things, I feel kind of overwhelmed or I feel like, where do you even start? Um, but when I bring it right down to human beings loving each other, when I bring it right down to the people that are in my world, when I bring it right down to my life, my choices, my words, my thoughts, my heart, uh, my, you know what I mean? My friendships is like, I guess for me, that's maybe I'm oversimplifying it. I don't know, but I kind of feel like that's just where it all starts is it starts, it starts here. It starts in our house. I mean, you know, who was it? You know, as for me in my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I mean, that's, I guess, I don't know. It is that simple. It really is. It really is. Like yeah. there's no magic pill to understanding. <laughs> the matrix. The, the matrix of black America, like, so I used to get up frustrated, like, well, just have someone over for dinner, but it's really that simple. Sit down, break bread, and just talk about your differences. I can respect you if you tell me about your prejudices against me or whatever struggles you may have, as opposed to you seeing me on Sunday saying, I love you, brother, but I only see you on Sunday. Right. Yeah, that's good. Like we really, we talk about doing life, but what does that really look like? It, it looks like being uncomfortable and getting down to the meat and potatoes of life with someone else that is different. Yeah. If you go to Sherman's, you're not just having meat and potatoes. <laughs> Let's be real. You're having some good cooking. It's <laughs> not meat and potatoes at Sherman's house. So you should take him up on that dinner. <laughs> Anytime. Let's do it. After COVID. After, after COVID. Disclaimer there. You, you show us some negative tests and then we can. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, this feels like a good place for us to land. Honestly, I, I just so appreciate all three of you. You're your honesty and your, you know, wisdom and, you know, this has just been, this has been one of my favorite conversations. I just wonder, I don't know, maybe Belon, you know, maybe you could just close this out in prayer. I mean, keep praying into these things that, you know, that we're believing to see different. I, 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 I really do want it to be different. I want um, I want it to be different for our kids. Yes. 
And um, maybe I'm stubborn, you know, but there's a part of me that's like, I just want to dig in and heaven help us come meet us here. Like we can't do this in our own strength, Lord, but we got to believe, you know, we don't, we don't have to believe. I, I, I want to believe that somehow through our sacrifices, our lives, our choices, that we are going to set up the next generation to have a, have a better world than the one that we, that we inherited. And I don't, I don't know all that, that, that that's going to take and what that's going to cost, but could you, Bowen, could you just pray into, I don't know, this whole conversation somehow and help us land this thing? God, in the name of Jesus, we just, we acknowledge that you are good and we acknowledge that you are God. And because of those two things, Lord, that everything that we spoke or talked about in this, this conversation today, Lord, that you hear it, you care about it, and that there is a plan one that we don't always see the step-by-step uh, -step of, God, but that's where faith comes in. Lord, give us a renewed sense of faith. Faith in you and faith in each other. Faith that there is good that exists in each of us. Um, we need your Holy Spirit to definitely pull that out of us and to cultivate it, but there is good in us. And I, I believe, I believe, Lord, that you want us to start seeing each other, um, really seeing each other and hearing each other and understanding each other because that's how we have a heart for each other. And that is your heart for us. God, give us your heart for others, especially people who are not like us or people who we perceive or assume is not like us, Lord God. Teach us how to live and love like you've created us to live and love, Father God. We don't have all the answers, God, but you're not expecting us to have all of the answers. Thank you for this divine appointment in this moment right here. God, I thank you that something was said in this conversation that will prick the heart of someone, Lord God, and encourage the heart of someone, Lord God, that will lead to change, change in their hearts, change in their, their mindsets, the way that they view people, change in the way that they interact with their family, change in the way that they interact in their community, God. I thank you for the seeds of hope, faith, and love that have been sown in this moment, oh God, sown even in our hearts, Lord God. God, we humbly repent before you, Lord God, repent for the times where we have, um, we, we've condemned somebody and was ready to throw the stones at them without realizing that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Every last one of us, none of us is without um, fault, Lord God. That's why we need you. That's why we need your Holy Spirit, God. So forgive us for thinking that we are better than what we are. God, teach us humility. 
Because in that place of humility, Lord God, we can serve others, Lord God, and we can have an open heart to be used by you, Lord God. Have your way in us. Mm. Completely yield to you, Lord God. Show us the way, Lord. There is a way, Lord God. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. So God, continue to guide us to you, Lord God. I praise you for this moment of racial reckoning. I praise you for bringing these things to light because it's time. And God, I thank you that as you bring these things to light, then that's where the real healing can begin. So God, thank you for being so good that you wouldn't leave us broken, battered, and bruised, but that you would bring us to a place where you can renew us, that you can restore us, that you can heal us, and that you can knit us together as one under your banner of love. We honor you and we give you all the glory because you are worthy of it. Heal our land, Lord God, but allow us to turn back to you so that you can do just that. In Jesus' most precious and holy name, we thank you for your guidance and your wisdom. We need it. Amen. 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 Well, thank you all. This has just been just a really wonderful conversation. And um, I'm going to be listening, listening back to it. I can't wait to share it with people. I just appreciate you guys taking the time and all that you shared. And amen, Belon, to everything that you, that you prayed. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.